If it's your first time here, welcome to South Point Church. Thank you so much for joining us. Like I said earlier, if you're tuning in online, thank you for being a part of what uh, is going on today. And uh, we're just going to continue walking through the book of Nehemiah. We have been walking through that uh, for all of this year so far. And last week, we got to the very end of the passage that we were reading, and we said, hey, this is actually a prayer that we're going to be talking through for the next couple of weeks. Um, It's the longest prayer in the Old Testament, and you can read it in about six and a half minutes. And we said that, hey, you don't have to really pray for a super long time for God to be very glorified in what you're saying and doing. And today we're going to continue that. And really the way that this looks, it, it reminds me of something that's happened over the last couple of weeks in my household. He's already over there, but usually during this service, there's a little blonde bulldozer that goes running through to the kids area. That's my Andy. And uh, he found a show on Netflix called Avatar and he wanted to watch it. And he said, daddy, will you watch this with me? And unbeknownst to him, that's actually one of my favorite television shows because I still watch cartoons. And I said, yeah, bud, I'd love to watch it. And I've watched the entire series. We're about halfway through at this point. And in the thing, if you've ever seen it, the next to the last episode before the series finale, they really just kind of recap everything that had happened in this story in one episode. And you kind of get these glimpses of all the different things that you've seen and you, you remember them. But you just get to watch them play out much more quickly than if you were to read and watch it in its entirety. And that's what this prayer is going to transition into. This is a prayer where they're just praying a story. They're praying the story of what they know that God has done. And last week we got to see that they covered creation. They said, we know that God created everything. And we look out on his creation and we're in wonder of what he's done. And we look at the sunrise that comes up and it's beautiful and we look at the full moon at night and we, you know, I said we get up on a ski lift and you look out and you see all these mountains and you just go, God is the creator of all of this. And then they continue on and they said, and we understand that God calls people. We know that he called Abram. Abram, who was a man who was extremely successful, had a lot of material possessions, he was very comfortable. And then God comes to him one day and says, hey, Abram, I want you to leave this area of comfort And I'm calling you, and I'm going to call you to a new area. I'm not even going to tell you exactly where it is yet. I just want you to go that way. And Abraham looked at all of his comfort and all of his possession and said, I know that this God is bigger, and I'm going to be faithful to him, and I'm going to follow after him. And so we're going to continue basically just a story today. And if you've kind of had any time in church, I'll be honest, you've probably heard these stories. We're going to talk about Moses. We're going to talk about the Israelites when they were in Egypt. These are stories that a lot of times we sit down with little kids and we tell them these stories and we've heard them, but then there's these moments where we realize, man, it's good just to reflect back on what God has done, even when you already know it. This is the beauty of Scripture. There's times where you can read a verse a hundred times, and on the hundred and first, you read it and go, oh my gosh, or just simply reminded of God's goodness. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 9, and we're just going to kind of read a couple verses, talk through them, read a few more, and talk through them some more. In verse 9 it says, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. 
See, this, you have to remember, you're, we're reading through a prayer. As this people have gone along, like this story has had so many different elements. It really, it started with Nehemiah going, I, I've heard, heard the story of how Jerusalem, this great city of God, it's without a wall. And man, I'm convicted about that and I'm praying through that. And I know God's calling me to do something. And so he makes his way there. They build this wall, like several miles of wall in 52 days. It's a celebration time. And then God begins to stir in the people. They begin to read from God's word, and some of these people are hearing it for the first time, and it's, this sense of revival begins to just build in these people, and they become what we call a people of the book, like they fell in love with God's word. And so now they've had this celebration, and there's, there's been a time where they've had the word of God read over them, and there's been a time where they've worshiped, and they've confessed, and then they get up, and a priest begins to pray this prayer, and he just really begins to pray a story. He prays a story that they would have heard at this point, but some of them are still very new to this. Like they're, they're really just hearing it for like the third time. And he just begins to pray a story. And it's a reflection on God's glory and his goodness. And over and over and over again, as we get into this prayer, there's something I want to point out. It says, you saw the affliction of our fathers. And you performed signs and wonders. And you knew that they acted arrogantly. Over and over again, and as we look through this, it's you, 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 you. You created, you called, you did this, you did that. They are putting all of the focus on God. And we need to remember that today. There's not a lot of look what we did. There's going to be some look what we did, and we'll get to that in about 20 minutes. Um, but it's going to be in an area where it's sinful. Um, but this prayer, over and over and over again, it puts the emphasis where it needs to be, on him. God created everything, the heavens and the earth. God chose and called Abram. He still does that today. It's God that is actively working in everything. It's not about an individual. It's not about a staff, even church. Like, it's all about him. And this prayer reflects that. They know where the attention needs to go. It needs to be on God. And so they make this prayer, and it's just a reflection on God's goodness, and it's a reflection on his glory. Like, they begin to give a testimony of what God has done. Like, you got to see a testimony this morning. That's a sense of what baptism is. It's just proclaiming what God has done in people's lives. And they begin to pray this, and they prayed about creation. They prayed about Abraham. And then they get to this portion of the story. And it's interesting the way that it's kind of laid out. It says, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. Now, if you know anything about this story, those are two different events. The people were crying out because they had been enslaved. If you, the beginning of the story goes, Joseph at one point had a little mishap with his brothers, and they sold him into slavery. Um, man, I've gotten into fights with my brothers, but I've never done that. Um, but God's sovereign, and God called him out of that slavery and basically made him the number two in Egypt, which is a superpower at the time. And so Joseph brings his family in, and Family comes, and the family begins to grow and begins to grow, and it's not long before the Egyptians look around and say, hey, there are so many Israelites. If we don't do something, they're going to take over our country. If they ever rise up, they're going to be more numerous than we are. And so they enslaved them. They enslaved an entire nation and culture. And they had them making bricks and building things, and, man, the people were crying out, and they cried out to God, and he heard that. Now, the Red Sea story happens a little bit later, and we're going to bridge that here in a second. But sometimes you go, well, is, is Nehemiah trying to put those things together? No, they write it that way because you also have to remember we're going through an Old Testament book. 
It was written 2,500 years ago by a culture that looks dramatically different than ours today. We are very westernized. When you write a story, you will typically write beginning, middle, end. Hebrews would write beginning, end, middle. It's almost like they would take a big paintbrush and do the story. And then they would come back with a fine brush and they would tell the middle of it to give all the details. You see that in Genesis 1 and 2 even. Genesis 1 is the big brush stroke of God creating everything. Genesis 2 is the fine paintbrush that comes in and fills in all the middle details in the story. And this is just kind of how they wrote. And that's why he says these two separate things, but then he goes back in the verses that follow and he kind of fills in a little bit. But he says, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. And so he knew that they were doing all these things. It says, you perform signs and wonders. This is another part of the story for them. This is the story of the plagues in the Bible. This is the one where we sit down with kids and we go through the ten plagues. But, man, are they meaningful. You had the first one where the Nile turns into blood. Now, you don't have to be a big geography person, but most people can name three rivers. Mississippi, the Amazon, and the Nile. Like, we know those because they're major, major waterways. The Nile is a massive, massive river that completely supported the entire Egyptian country. Like, they grew out of the Nile, essentially, because it provided farmland for them, all of these different things. It's a huge body of water. And you also have to understand, like, the stuff that we're talking about here, it's absolutely supernatural. Like, God does things because only God can do them. And so this massive body of water, Moses goes out to one portion, his brother Aaron goes out to another, and they raise up staffs. And suddenly all this water just turns to blood. I mean, it's an absolutely disgusting scene. We were talking earlier this week in the staff meeting, and we were talking about Passover. During Passover, all these people would show up to Jerusalem. They would go through all of these different sacrifices to atone for their sin. Like, the amount of blood from those would have made the city, it would have smelled so horrible. And now you've got a massive river of it. It's killing everything inside of it. It smells And these Egyptians are looking out going, I've seen some things, but I've never seen this. Because this is also, it's so supernatural, like they had been a part of some things like that, but nothing like when God starts to work. And so they look out, and the Nile turns to blood, and then the second plague hits. And these frogs appear everywhere in Egypt. And some people go, is that really that bad of a thing? They're kind of cute. I'll tell you, my wife couldn't make it past plague two. Uh, she is petrified of frogs, like absolute phobia to where we, we couldn't have gotten her out of the house and she'd have locked herself in somewhere. But everywhere you look, man, a frog pop out, and then it just continues. And then you, after the frogs, you had gnats that showed up, just these swarms of gnats, and man, people are they're batting everything. You can't hardly breathe. And then if that wasn't enough, flies show up. And again, people go, well, flies aren't really that bad. The way that they describe this in like Jewish lore is essentially it blocked out the sun like these swarms of flies that would come in and those things they'll they won't sting but they'll bite and I've had to learn since moving to Abilene there's some flies around here that are on steroids um they show up and I'm like I think we need to talk this out I'm not going to get the fly swatter we need to have a little diplomacy and so millions of these things swarming around infecting people Just an absolute travesty, and yet Pharaoh looks and goes, I'm watching this happen, but no, they are going to stay our slaves. Then you had a plague on livestock. After all this, and you know, they've got this river turning to blood and all these insects flying around, then they look out at their livestock, and remember, this is a very agrarian society. 
Um, not a lot of money in stocks and bonds and technology in this day and age. But if you had animals, man, those could work the land. They provided your food, your clothing, everything along those lines. And they look out, and all these animals are just dropping dead. I mean, some of them probably had names, and they're just gone. And still, Pharaoh goes, no, we're going to keep these people under our foot. Then the sixth one gets a little personal because it only happened to the Egyptians. After all of this, after watching this river show up with blood all in it and all these gnats and insects and their animals are dying, they woke up one morning and they're like, what is that? And they start scratching a little bit and man, it starts to hurt because they'd all been infected with boils. And these things that they would scratch a little bit and then it would spread, unbelievably painful. Now it was very personal for them. And then if that's not enough, they look up in the sky and these clouds begin to form and it starts to hail. And this is an area where they had not experienced ice falling out of the sky very often. But if you, I mean, we know what that looks like because every, you know, about a decade or so, you get a new roof from your insurance company because a hailstorm comes through and beats it to trash. And sometimes it's those little bitty pieces, and sometimes it's a whole lot worse. And if you're outside and you've never experienced this, it would have seemed like God was trying to kill you. Because I remember when I lived in Fort Worth, I was about 100 yards from a church I was working at. Traffic was backed up and a hailstorm hit. And it was good golf ball size hail. Enough to where I am sitting in a car, it's in park, and I'm going, it's about to break the windshield. I mean, it sounds terrifying. And I'm trying to make the decision, okay, I can get in the middle and I'll try and cover up with stuff as best I can. And then, if you've ever seen some crazy videos out of like Oklahoma, I watched a video of like softball size hail hitting a swimming pool and it looked like people were setting bombs off in it. And we don't know how big the hail was, but we know that it showed up and it just decimated all their crops. And again, now they're looking and going, okay, our future livelihood is gone. The hail destroyed most of it. And if that wasn't enough, then you get number eight, a bunch of locusts come in and they just consume and eat everything in the land. And so now these people are in pain. They're watching all this craziness happen. And now they're even looking and going, okay, our future livelihood is not there. Like if there, if there is no food, we don't survive. And Pharaoh goes, nope, still going still gonna to keep them. And so at this point, I have to think, these people are looking around at all of this and just feel like, man, this is a really dark moment in our history. And I think to kind of prove that point, you get plague number nine. And God sends a darkness for days. And so a people that don't really have an understanding of like how the sun and the earth operate are now looking around going, well, it's noon and it's pitch black here. We're in pain and everything, and it just reinforces that, hey, we are walking through some darkness. And still Pharaoh doesn't do anything, and so you get the tenth plague. And that's where we get Passover from. The Israelites were told, hey, make a sacrifice and coat your doorway with blood, and the angel of death is going to pass over you. But all throughout Egypt, the firstborn son died. A night of absolute cries and terror. And then it gets Pharaoh's attention. And Pharaoh goes, okay you can leave now. I, I, I get it. And he sends them off, sends them off with a lot of treasure. And Pharaoh is really dumb. <laughs> because after seeing all of that, it's not just a, a short time later, he goes, no, let's go back and get them. So he sends the army out. The Israelites, they get to the Red Sea. And the Israelites, man, this, this story is filled with a lot of sadness and the fact that no one is realizing how big God is and what he's doing. Because they had watched all these plagues happen, they'd seen all the miracles, and they get to a, a body of water, and they freak out, and they're like, we just got sent out here to die. And God goes, no, I, I still hear you. 
Moses holds up a staff in this, don't think like Kirby, think bigger. <laughs> this big body of water, God sends a wind and it just splits. And these people are looking out and suddenly what was watered, who knows how deep, it's just spread out. And they're able to go through and they pass through. And then the Egyptian army, again, like the superpower of the time, they're running through with chariots and warriors and armor and weapons. And God goes, all right, Moses, put your hands down. And they watched God consume the most powerful army on the face of the earth at that time in an instant. This is what God does. And that same God that did this 2,500 years ago is the same God that we serve today. God still sees and hears and leads his people. That same God that they're telling the story of, all these people are listening so intently right now and just hearing the story of what God's done for them. It's the same God that we serve today. He still hears you. He hears you when you cry out. He hears you when you go, God, I don't know how I'm walking through this. That same God that heard a people saying, we have been enslaved for a long time. Help us. That same God still hears today. He sees all the things that are happening in our lives. He still cares for us. He still runs after us. He still leads us in good times and bad. There's times where he hears our praise. There's times where he hears our cries and our prayers. But that same God that they're telling this story of is the same God that lovingly leads and cares for us today. Then it continues on in verse 13. It says, You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So he just begins to, he continues telling the story. So God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt and he freed them and now they're making their way and the, the army, they're not worried about it anymore. And they get to Mount Sinai. And this entire nation just camps out around the bottom of it. And Moses and one of his servants, they make their way to the top. And the scene is terrifying, the way that Scripture describes it. Like the presence of God just kind of descends on this mountain. And there's, there's smoke and there's clouds. And they watch Moses go up in there. And they kind of wonder, wonder what's going to happen. Moses makes his way up there because God just meets with his people. Moses has this amazing interaction where God writes down the first laws. The Ten Commandments, the like most basic of human morality. And God etches them on tablets and gives them to Moses. And they're the ones that we sit down with our kids and go, hey, let me tell you about the Ten Commandments. And we make terrible children's songs that get stuck in your head and you can't ever forget them. Um, years ago, I was at a church. They were doing a series on the Ten Commandments. And my roommate was the video guy for the church, so he did all of the editing. And there was this 10-10 commandment song that he would put on a loop on his computer and then lock it. And I heard that song so many times, like it drove me insane. But we sit down with kids and we go, hey, this is the most basic of things. But the reality is when we really start looking at them, and they're kind of hard to keep. I mean, the first commandment, no other gods before me. 
You had the Israelites coming out of Egypt, out of a place where they had a ton of different gods. They had a God Anubis to this, and God of sun, and God of death, and all these different gods. And God goes, no, you're about to learn what monotheism is. There is one God. You shall have no other gods, little g, before me. Nothing comes before me. God is the greatest. He is the the topmost thing. And yet so many times, like, we'll try and put something up there with him if we're not careful. And to kind of reinforce it, you get the second one. You'll have no idols. Now, this was a culture where idols were a thing, where they were building these things, you know, the, the golden calf and everything like that. And I've been around cultures today where they still have what we would consider idol worship. But most of us actually do that one as well. Now, we may not, you don't have anything sitting on the mantle at home that you go, this is God. But we create idols out of everything. We create idols out of this idea of, hey, if I have enough money in this area, I'm going to be okay. Or if I can achieve this level of success in whatever my field is, then, then I'm, I'm going to be awesome. And we make idols out of sport. We make idols out of really good things at times. We make children into idols at times. I tell people, kids make terrible idols. They're a gift from God. Don't make them into an idol. Don't put that above where God is. The third, he says, do not take God's name in vain. And there's times where we go, well, I don't say what, what you're talking about, but we take God's name in vain when we don't appreciate the things that he's done for us. He says, keep the Sabbath holy. This day, that, this reminder that God created everything, and then God rested. Now, did God have to rest on the seventh day? No. There's nothing that makes him tired. Like, there's nothing that he goes, whew, that was a hard day today. And, uh, you know, when he stands up, he makes the dad joke, oh, got to groan a little bit. Like, God never does that. He put that day there as a reminder that we would need rest, that we would need reflection on what he has done. And so we consider this our Sabbath, where we come together and we worship and we reflect on who he is and what he has done in our lives as an act of worship. And the fifth one, he says, honor your father and mother. There's no greater transition in the commandments than this one. Because there's a chapter of your life where you go, I really don't like that one. And then you become a parent. And you go, that's my favorite commandment. Like, I love that one. I'll share that one with my kids all the time. Hey, remember God said you need to do what I say. And so it's this reminder, though, that there's a level of respect. And this is another reminder that this is a really, really hard commandment. Because this one carries a lot of responsibility, not just for the kids, but for the adults. Because there's so many times things happen where I go, you know what? You, that kid is acting that way because you have not accepted the responsibility of being a parent. And I don't really blame the kid. I say to the parent, you got to step up. Because there was a time a couple years ago, Whitney came home from work. She worked at Rainbow Bible School. Logan was there for a summer program, and she said, we need to talk. So, oh, okay. She said, Logan said something at school today. I said, well, what did he say? And she told me, and um, it, it was at the top. We'll just put it that way. Um, and I was like, I know he doesn't hear that around here unless it's you. Um, and I'm joking. She's not here to defend herself for this service. So I was like, I know he didn't hear that at home. So I sat him down and said, hey, bud, you're, you're not in trouble, but where did, where did you hear that? He said, from, he listed a kid in his class. They were in kindergarten. And I went, you know what, I, I know the kid you're talking about, and I, I know what the home life looks like for him, and that's not on him. It's just parents not parenting. Like, we have been given the responsibility to instill honor, and so we have to rise up within that. Then you get number six, do not murder. 
Most people go, hey, don't struggle with that one. Um, I always make the joke, if you are struggling with that one, Jeff and Terry, that's our um, sixth commandment team. Uh, They'll talk with you. But we know that Jesus blew that up in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, look, if you've ever had hate in your heart towards another person, it's the same as murder. Number seven, do not commit adultery. That one becomes such a big thing today, and we just kind of flippantly throw that one off, and yet God says, hey, this is a mingling of souls that's going on here, and it's something that's reserved within marriage. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not bear false witness. Ten, do not covet. I mean, these are the most basic of human morality, and yet we look at them and we go, man, I've broken every single one of these. The reality is that, like, All God has to do is give law and commandment to me for me to be shown that, hey, I need him. I need his grace. I need his mercy because I look and, man, have I messed up. But here's the beauty in it. God is gracious and he is merciful. He even talks about, he says, hey, you gave bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought water to them when they were thirsty. God meeting the needs of his people over and over and over again. This nation was out in an arid place. And man, they were dying of thirst. Moses hits a rock, water comes out. Because you know what? God. (laughs) He sends manna, this bread from above. He provides for their needs, and he meets them even when they are going to mess up. It's inevitable. And that's where we get to the you part. Verse 16, it says, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a new leader to return their slavery in Egypt. I love this. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them a way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. In the midst of sin, whatever it may be, God's grace and goodness never run out. I love that they include this in their prayer. Of God, you have done all of these things. You led us out of this country. You freed us from slavery You were everywhere, God. But in the midst of that, we were stupid. (laughs) Stiffened our necks, acted presumptuously. I'm going to try and use that word more often with my own children just to confuse them. (laughs) But these people had watched all that God had done. They knew what it was to have freedom. They knew what it was to see miracles performed right in front of them. And all it took was a little bit of time for Moses to go up on the mountain and them to lose their minds and they create this golden calf and they say, hey, this is, this is what freed you from, from your slavery. And then Moses comes down and they have to deal with that. But in the midst of all of that, as they pray, they remember, God, you are a gracious and loving God. Even in the midst of all of that, you forgave. You made a way for us. Your mercy was poured out. It says, 
gosh. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. That's our God. Because all you have to do is just take the Ten Commandments and go, man, I've broken three, four, five. Like, we have. We know that that sin creates a separation between ourselves and God. We know that that sin carries a price. The Bible says that it's death. But man, God is gracious. And he is forgiving. And the same God that they're just kind of retelling this story of is the same God that we serve today. The same God that was merciful and slow to anger and never forsake them is the same God that we serve in 2021. And we get an even better part of the story. They knew the grace of God, but we know that how that grace is absolutely perfected through Jesus Christ. See, if we start telling the story, we, we share the gospel within that, that you know what, God is loving and slow to anger, and God is making a way for us to be back to him, and it comes through Jesus Christ. And we know that, yes, there is a price to pay for that sin, and Jesus paid it. And it's only through him that we can be right standing with God. It's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate that in things like baptism. We celebrate it and we proclaim how good he is. The same God that's working in this story is the same God that's working today. So we celebrate that. Remember, this prayer is a reflection on God's goodness and his grace. So as we live our lives this week, as we pray this week, as we study this week, as we come together to do ministries together this week, we remember his goodness, we remember his grace, and I pray that we share the story with others as well. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, it is so good to share your story. God, a story that starts with creation. Just showing the, the majesty and your name and all of that. And God, your love and grace for us that was poured out through Christ. And if there's anyone that's either in the room today or watching online who that's never been a personal thing for them, but every time we say, Jesus, something just stirs inside of you, I pray that you would know that's the Holy Spirit moving in your life, calling you. And if you've never experienced that mercy and that grace that comes through Jesus, but you go, I need that today, I would encourage you to say, God, as best as I know how, I want to come to you. I want to turn away from my old life. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life and follow him. In that instant, man, it's a new creation. We celebrated that with baptisms throughout the day. And if that was you, whether it be online or in person, I would encourage you, put that on a Connect card, come and talk to one of us. Like, we want to celebrate that. God, I pray that we'll be a people that just reflect on all of your goodness and your grace, and it encourages us. It leads us. And we always point people back to you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.